By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. The world heading into 2023 looks very different from what we had imagined a year ago. We've talked about a lot of the reasons why here on this podcast. A hot military conflict in Europe, which has given rise to an energy crisis, inflation at higher levels than we've seen in around two generations, all in a world that's even more leveraged than it was just a few years ago. Moody's 2023 Global Credit Conditions Outlook is hot off the presses. And so now that 2022 is largely in the rearview mirror, today we ask, What are the big risks that we're watching in 2023? I'm your host, Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing credit markets. And this is a special edition of our podcast to accompany the publication of our 2023 outlook. And today's pod is pretty much as big picture as it gets. And I'm delighted to be joined today by two guests who love nothing more than to dig into these issues. For Moody's Investor Service, We have Elena Dugar and Colin Ellis, who both analyze the big credit themes across all economic sectors and regions of the globe. And Colin, I'm going to start with you. So can you summarize how the global credit landscape is looking as we head toward 2023? Yeah. Hi, Sarah. Thanks very much for having me. I think the the overwhelming word I would use is probably gloomy. Uh, Really, an awful lot has changed uh, in the past year. And whereas at the end of 2021, we were kind of looking forward to a kind of normalization as the last dredges of COVID were hopefully swept away and things were going to kind of get back to what or life as we knew before COVID. We've seen things pretty much sent wildly off course uh, around the world due to a a series of risks that have crystallized pretty swiftly. You already talked about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that's a pretty big deal. But the knock on impacts of that alongside Uh, the effects of the US fiscal expansion and the issues we're seeing in the Chinese property market right now means that we're in the start of seeing a real credit downturn. Now, one point that you and your team bring up in the report is that this credit cycle is unlike anything we've seen in recent decades. Can you talk a little bit about why that's the case? I think it's a whole bunch of different reasons. it's, It's important to start off by saying that no two credit cycles are ever the same. And when I think about the credit cycle, I think about the default rate. I think about how many people are losing money because bond issuers are not paying their bills on time and in full. That's what uh, we think about in terms of defaults. Uh, And this time around, we have, against a relatively bad economic backdrop, we're only expecting a kind of relatively modest increase in the default rate over the next year, despite the fact that we're about to head into recession in various parts of the world. So. We tend to focus on the speculative grade default rate. Uh, that's our kind of default rate among lower rated issuers. And we're only expecting that to pick up to about 4.3% over the next 12 months. That's a pretty modest increase given that we're going to see a recession. Elena, are there other things that you're seeing that make this particularly unusual? Thanks, Sarah, and thanks for having me today as well. I'll add two things where I think this cycle is a bit different than past cycles. One is the speed of the financial conditions tightening, the speed with which rate hikes are coming aggressive and very front-loaded from central banks across the globe. So very, very fast 
tightening of financial conditions, which doesn't leave much time for consumers or companies to adjust to the new realities. And I think the second one is the amount of the uncertainty in the outlook is very, very large. For all the things that can go wrong, we could end up in a world with much more severe economic contractions globally. And that will mean a lot of uncertainty in the environment, a lot of financial markets volatility on the back of it. Now, Elena, one of the things that you're well known for is your work on sovereign defaults. And we don't see many sovereign defaults from year to year. But could you talk about where sovereigns are uh, with regard to defaults, things that we've seen this year, and what some of the most important risks are that we see for next year? So we are already seeing a spike in the sovereign default rate this year. We already in 2022 today have six sovereign defaults, which is on par with the spike that we saw in 2020 in the middle of the coronavirus shock. And we are coming off of 2021 where we only saw one, one sovereign default. So already a spike this year and moreover looking forward, we expect the sovereign default rate to remain elevated. We're looking at sovereigns, which are a lot of the frontier market sovereigns, which are under pressure from rising interest rates, which are under pressure from slowing growth, which are under pressure from the capital outflows that they're seeing because of the strong door. So emerging market sovereigns, and and particularly the frontier sovereigns, which are exposed to external financing, which have a larger share of foreign currency debt, are going to see financial pressures. And what are the kinds of frontier markets that you see as being particularly at risk? Yeah, so I think most immediately, right, emerging markets in general will see very, very much less supportive external conditions. We are going to see slower trade growth. We are going to see capital outflows, capital coming out of emerging markets back to some of the larger advanced economies. Uh, We are going to see pressure on the exchange rates. So economies which are reliant on export led growth models are going to be more under pressure relative to economies which are relying on more domestic driven growth. And also economies in terms of debt sustainability, countries which have, again, large share of external financing coming due that needs to get rolled and refinanced. And uh, countries which have a larger share of foreign currency debt, which because of the strength of the dollar will balloon relative to local currency revenue. Now, Colin, I want to turn to you to talk about corporate defaults, because what you said in your previous comments made me think that what we've seen so far isn't nearly as bad as the kind of situation that Elena was outlining for some of the uh, frontier market sovereigns. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, um, the numbers I talked about, which is our spec grade default rate rising to 4.3% over the next year from where it is now, which is 2.3%. That's a kind of baseline forecast. Right. And, and we could easily see something worse. And one of the things we do regularly in our research is we run some kind of downside scenarios where if you have um, a kind of worse outcome than we're expecting, particularly in terms of macro and financial conditions like Eleanor was talking about, we, we give people a sense of how high the default rate could go. And at the moment, you know, those, those warning signs are, are pretty bad. So in our kind of moderate pessimistic scenario, we could see the default rate jump to about 8%. Uh, in a severe kind of downturn, we could see it jump to 12, maybe even towards 13%. So it's important to note that you know, our baseline is this relatively modest pickup, but there are some big downside risks out there. 
And Elena talked about there being regional differences, particularly concentrations with the frontier markets. Are you also seeing differentiation across regions? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, um, our portfolios, of course, differ uh, from region to region in terms of our coverage of corporate credit. But in the US, for example, uh, the sectors where we're expecting the default rate to jump most over the next year are things like um, durable goods for consumers, partly because people have already just spent a lot on that. And it's the kind of thing you cut back on when the economy takes a bit of a tumble. Uh, cars and automotives are another sector where we're expecting more defaults. Whereas in Europe, um, we'd probably look at things like uh, hotels, gaming and leisure, and probably containers and packaging. So, you know, th- there are some differences, but there are some similarities as well. So, so telecoms, telecommunications, that's one of the sectors where we expect the default rate to jump both in Europe and in the US. Are there things that you would see that would make the warning lights flash red for you? You've already talked about some ways in which the situation could turn out to be worse. So for the people who are listening, if there were things they were to see in the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times, what are the things that you would say should make someone start to get a little bit more worried? Elena? I mean, from a macroeconomic environment perspective, inflation is a big driver of the global outlook. So if we see inflation remaining persistent and not coming down a few months down the road, that would be a warning sign. That would mean that central banks would need to hike rates a lot higher than what we expect uh, expect now. And that will materialize a lot tighter financial conditions. So that's that's a big one. I think, of course, the, the path of energy prices and the energy transition to alternative data sources in Europe and how fast that that happens and how much that happens uh, in the extent of energy rationing countries would have to implement on, on the back of it. What I might add to that, because you know, the macro stuff, you've, you've always, you can't take your eye off that really uh, if you're worried about this stuff. But one of the other things you know, that we've noticed is coming back to kind of pure credit, we have an awful lot of weak issuers at the moment. We've got, if you look at the distribution of our ratings, there's an awful lot of single Bs. There's quite a lot of CAAs even where we're signaling significant credit risks. But when we look at the liquidity profiles of those issuers, there isn't kind of a very big refinancing requirement that's falling due in 2023. And so even some of these weaker issuers on paper, it seems, have a bit of time to either see whether conditions can kind of normalize or markets can get a bit easier to kind of issue debt in. If you were to see that time evaporate, maybe because some of those issuers decide to restructure their debts before they need to, that would probably be a credit signal that I'd be worried about. Now, it's interesting that you bring up liquidity. That was the next thing I wanted to talk about, because that's like oxygen for, uh, for, for companies and for sovereigns. And we haven't really had to worry that much about that for quite a few years because there was a lot of funding out there. But is this becoming a bigger risk, Elena, as interest rates rise and capital market access becomes tighter? Colin's already talked about what he might see with corporates that might make him get worried. Yeah. So for corporates, I think it's becoming a bigger risk because as as Colin was explaining, we have a large number of issues with weak credit profiles that have come to market in the last several years. And that's particularly for the US and for Europe. And they are now a large share of the B2 and below rated portfolios. And their business models were structured within an environment where rates were were low. So they're going to have to adapt to rising rates environment and you know, the, how much they have that really depend on whether their earnings prospects hold up. 
So there's going to be kind of a lot of weakness there if growth and the revenues uh, decline as well. On the sovereign side, there's quite a bit of diversification, if you will, across countries. So even if you, I'll start with the emerging markets, but even among the emerging markets, the large emerging markets are actually in a relatively more resilient state. So there's quite a bit of, they have cushions, they have reserves, they have accumulated, they have now, now they're using to actually uh, back up their exchange rates. Their debt servicing costs are starting to rise. So they will feel kind of the pain of, of rising rates. But they have some buffers to deal with, unlike the small frontier markets where the buffers are much less. And they're seeing both a lot of that that has come on their balance sheets over the last decade, plus now increase in, in debt servicing costs because of the rates increases. The advanced economies also have more, more cushion. You know, they have gone now through a period where debt servicing costs, despite the fact that debt has actually gone up over time, the debt servicing costs have actually come down. Because if you look at interest rates since the 80s, they have gone low and low and low and low, which means that, you know, a lot of the advanced economies are issuing new debt at rates which are much lower than kind of the average interest rate on, on the debt stock. So they have still, for several years going forward, most of them have very manageable debt servicing costs, so much, much less pressure on them. But how does inflation change that picture for the advanced economies? Because, you know, you certainly have some that I follow that issue inflation-linked debt, for example, or floating rate debt. So how quickly do you expect that trend to start turning? So it will take right for, for sovereigns of corporates as well. What we've seen over the last decade and in that period of favorable liquidity, you've seen a lot of issues push maturities out. So actually the average maturity on the debt stock is something like five to seven years for, for many countries. And so the increase in the interest rates will feed into debt servicing costs only over time. So have some period over which they'll have a bit of a cushion before the full effect of this is, is realized. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing with, with corporates, right? I mean, it's a classic idea of, you know, being two years into a five-year fixed rate mortgage. You've got a bit of time before your kind of interest cost jumps. And I think that's, yeah, that relates to what I was talking about earlier for corporates. When we look at how many of those have to come to the market next year and refinance some of these debts or equivalently kind of renegotiate their mortgage, it's quite a small number. It's only really when we get into 2024 and beyond that that need to come and issue debt again starts to really build. And that's the point at which these higher interest rate costs would ordinarily be felt. Now, we've talked a lot about financial risks, risks of default. I'd like to change gears for, for a minute and talk about social risks, because one of the things that we see uh, you know, in countries, both advanced markets and emerging markets, are increasing social pressures. Consumers are not used to inflation like this anymore. Elena, how are you thinking about social risks in the sovereign space? Social risk will be a key key focus for some time to come. We are looking at decades high inflation and decades high food and energy prices across countries. And that means high cost of living for households. This also comes at a time where many governments' finances are somewhat constrained in providing fiscal support. So it will matter in terms of debt repayment capacity, I think through several channels. And I'll give you a couple of examples how we're seeing it. Uh, you are seeing it in terms of social unrest in Latin America. You're seeing it as, as kind of increasing political risk. Uh, in parts of Africa, you're seeing it as, as food insecurity and situations where 
you know, a few months down the road, governments which have very constrained external finances will potentially have to make a choice between financing food imports and paying debt service. So have a very direct link to credit. And Colin, how is this affecting other kinds of issuers? So, so I think it's interesting. I, I mean, m- maybe just to start with the inflation point, um, you know, w- one thing that I think is probably happening a bit now is, you know, yes, we know there was this kind of energy shock driving inflation in various parts of the world, and there was a big fiscal stimulus in the US that's probably contributing as well. But one thing that high inflation does is it kind of gives companies a chance to reset prices, and maybe it's a bit easier to get away with it than in a world when uh, inflation is lower. And people don't notice it as much because price is generally going up. So th- there could be a bit of upside there. We've always thought that pricing power is incredibly important uh, in terms of retaining your credit worthiness because your ability to pass on costs to your customers you know, is, is one of the key kind of safety valves. But I think also, you know, the world's just a bit different today from how it used to be. Uh, in the good old days, if you didn't like what a company was doing for whatever reason, you voted with your wallet and you went somewhere else. Um, whereas nowadays, I think companies are increasingly conscious of how people see them uh, and the way that they engage with social media and everything like that just tells you that this, these things really can and do uh, impact on the way that company leaders react to events. Now, an- another uh, thing that we talk about in the credit outlook is, of course, climate risks. They haven't gone away. And if anything, you're bubbling around behind all of this talk about higher energy costs and higher inflation is uh, the fact that you know, Europe's going through an energy crisis. How does the current situation in Europe and the issues with high energy costs make it potentially more difficult to fund some of the measures that need to be taken if climate goals are going to be reached? First and foremost, you know, when you look at Europe, there's a lot of coal-fired power stations that we were hoping would be out of business before too long if we're serious about the kind of carbon transition plan that we have. And the reality is, uh, because Europe has had to find a whole bunch of energy that it used to get from Russia, some of those are being used a bit more. But I think that's probably a short-term thing. I, I think we're still pretty confident that over the medium term, Europe will manage that kind of energy transition. The broader point, um, Sarah, that I, I think you're hinting at is you know, this current episode is going to cost governments more money. Uh, and we've just been through a whole series of other shocks that have cost governments loads of money called COVID and the global financial crisis and the euro crisis and things like that. So sovereign indebtedness globally is basically just kind of risen and risen and risen. Uh, and at some point, of course, that probably makes it a bit harder for you to raise new funds at the same kind of cost in order to plow those things into green energy investments or stuff like that. One point I'd like to add is on the kind of the shorter term, I think we really, the shorter term transition, we're really seeing a two track. And I think that needs to be appreciated. Yes, we're going to see some reopening of coal plants and, and nuclear power plants. But at the same time, we are seeing a boost in investment towards wind and solar and green energy. So it's really, we are seeing a push along both dimensions. And that eventually will, will move us closer to the greener technologies as well. Absolutely. Now, I want to ask you a last question, which is the same question we always use to, to close the big picture, which is, what is an issue or a question that you think isn't getting uh, as much attention in the global market as you think that it should? Colin? So uh, I, I'm going to be a little bit contrarian here, right? Because we are, we're a credit rating house, um, and like all good credit people, we, we, we kind of have a slightly downside bias. 
But it's important to remember that there can be upside risks to the credit and economic outlook as well. Things can sometimes turn out a bit better than expected. And one thing that I'm just keeping an eye on, um, you're starting to see wholesale energy prices, particularly in Europe, fall back quite a bit. Uh, and if that feeds through, it could mean that, that you know, there's a chance that inflation could fall a bit faster than we think. Uh, and that's, of course, good news. Uh, in the big picture sense, because it undoes a lot of the damage that Eleanor was talking about earlier. Uh, I'm not going to put a lot of weight on that as my, you know, that's not my baseline forecast and that's not what we expect to happen, but it's not all entirely doom and gloom out there. There are an awful lot of downside risks, uh, but that's one where we could see a little bit of a positive surprise. Okay, room for potential positive surprises from Colin, Eleanor? Yeah, I'll leave, it, I'll leave it on the bright side as well. I think, you know, a couple of things. We are seeing, I think, faster adaptation to the energy transition in Europe than what we would have expected six months ago. We are seeing the U.S. economy responding to the Fed tightening and some indications that inflation will come down a few months down the road. We are entering this 2023 challenging year with a lot of resilience in consumer sectors, in the corporate sector across many of the advanced economies, for example. So there are a lot of pockets of resilience and a lot of buffers that will provide kind of resilience as we go into this new, new challenging period. All right. So some, some possible places where we could be optimistic, even if it's not our base case. Well, Elena, Colin, thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today. Until next time, I'm Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.